Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is taken from the reading we heard uh, in Paul's letter to the Philippians as we continue through our series we're calling Complete Joy. You may be seated. We begin with a word of prayer. Mighty Father, we, grant, uh, we, we give you thanks that you have granted us your mercy and called us together to hear your word. We pray today, Lord, that as we hear of the nature of our salvation, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. This summer, while I was on my sabbatical, my family and I were able to take a number of road trips. Our youngest was in fourth grade, and I don't know if you know this, but if you have a fourth grader, you get into all the national parks for free. And so we went around and saw a number of the national parks this summer, uh, of which my favorite was Yosemite National Park. And if you've never been to Yosemite, you, you've, you've got to get there. This place, it's just stunning. It is absolutely uh, beautiful. I, I could spend a lot of time uh, in Yosemite, and I hope to spend more time there in the future. But we, we had a great time there. And when, uh, To get there, uh, my family, we took a road trip. We decided to take a road trip. And my family, we do pretty well on road trips. We have a good time. We really enjoy ourselves. But I will tell you, I have heard rumors of other families, not my own, of course, but other families, that things get a little tense on the road trip. Sometimes the road trip leads to a little bit of anxiety and frustration and grumbling and complaining. Like, you know, you've been there, you left the house, things were great, and you're about four or five hours in, and you decide as a parent, you know what, maybe it's time to take the video games away. And suddenly, you're about seven hours in, and the grumbling and complaining have gotten bad, and you as the driver are both simultaneously, simultaneously under and over-caffeinated at the same time, which only happens on road trips. It's a fascinating experience. Uh, and then, of course, everyone's had a ton of water, and there's not a rest stop for 72 miles. And suddenly, nobody's happy. Everybody's arguing. You're grumbling. You're complaining. It's not anymore, uh, are we there yet? But we're going back home, if this is how you keep acting, kind of conversations. Uh, and so this happens to other families, not mine, of course, uh, until you get to the national park or wherever you're headed. And suddenly you pull in and you arrive at your destination and it's just beautiful. And all of that just kind of melts away and you're overwhelmed uh, by the gift that God has given you, this destination that gives you the gift of awe. And you realize you would do it all again in a heart. Well, a road trip like this got me thinking uh, a little bit uh, today about vacations and our own text. When you go on vacation, when you take a road trip, when do you think on a trip like that the vacation actually begins? Is it right when you leave the house, like you get in the car and you take off and that's the beginning of the vacation? Do you consider the road trip and all of the fun and adventures that take place there as that part of the vacation? Or does the vacation really only begin when you arrive at the destination? And the answer, of course, is all of it. All of that is part of the vacation. All of it is built into this sort of journey that we call the vacation. There is a beginning, there is a time of journey and waiting, and of course, the time of arrival and joy. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. But by end here, we mean like a goal, a destination you're arriving at. And it strikes me today that as we come to our reading from Philippians, Paul is inviting us, along with the congregation in Philippi, to think about our salvation in these terms. 
So think about our salvation kind of like this vacation where there is a beginning, there is a middle, there is an end, a destination, a goal. And he does this by saying these very uh, provocative words that really cause me to kind of pause today. He says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this this verse might sound a little odd to us, especially if you've been around Lutheran churches for a while or you've been around Reformation kind of churches for a while, where we talk all the time about the saving grace of God. We know that salvation is God's job. That's God's work alone. He's the one who does the saving. We like to say it this way. He saves us by grace alone. It's all his gracious activity on account of Christ alone. Jesus is the one who accomplished salvation and he's done it for you. Make no mistake. He's done it for you. When he died for your sins and he rose again on the third day, that won you salvation. We can't trust our own work. We can't trust anything in ourselves. Our faith alone is in Christ. So then why does Paul say in light of all of that, Work out your own salvation. It sounds like my salvation has already been worked out. What's left to do? Well, this is where I think this language of salvation having a beginning, a middle, and an end, or a goal, is very helpful for us. Because I think it's going to help us conceptualize what Paul is really kind of getting at. So, so to get at this, I want to start with, an, I want to go into another question here today. And the question is this, when were you saved? Maybe you've heard that question before. Someone came up to you and said, when were you saved, brother? And and maybe that's a question you have engaged in the past. Well, when were you saved? The answer to this question is very easy. It was 2,000 years ago, roughly, on a bloody cross outside of Jerusalem, when Jesus of Nazareth, God in flesh, came and he absorbed all the sins of the world into his own body, and then took the judgment that all of those sins deserved upon himself, when Jesus suffered and died the wrath of God in your place so that you won't have to suffer that wrath, it was there on that cross that Jesus saved you from eternal punishment. He saved you from your own sinfulness. He saved you from the tyranny of the devil, and ultimately he saved you from the fate of death. There on that cross 2,000 years ago, you were saved. What's more, he rose from the grave, proclaiming that this was all accomplished and true, and then sent his Holy Spirit to the church so that the church might go out proclaiming this message. And at one point in your life, the Holy Spirit found you and took all this gospel, all this good news, all this work that Jesus had done for you, and he promised it to you individually. He gave it to you in your baptism. Or if you were saved later in life when it was preached into your ears and then you came to the waters of baptism. But in baptism, Jesus came to you and said, you are saved. This has all happened. It is an accomplished fact, you might say, that your salvation in this way had a beginning. There, your salvation started. You were forgiven. You were justified. You were saved. You can kind of think about it uh, in terms of uh, the Old Testament exodus. We're kind of like the Israelites in this way. 
If you don't know the story of the Israelites in the Exodus, I, I recommend you join us with our uh, morning devotions here at the church. On Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we do a morning devotion online, uh, and there we're going through the Exodus, right? But the story goes like this. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They were in bondage to Pharaoh, who was this tyrant who, who was oppressing them. And so God decided to save the Israelites, and he sent in Moses to, uh, to preach against Pharaoh. God enacted ten plagues, and that tenth plague was called the plague of the, uh, the death of the firstborn. And there was the Passover lamb. The Israelites sacrificed the lamb, wiped the blood of the, door, uh, blood of the lamb on the doorframe of their homes. The angel of death passed over their houses. And then the, uh, the Israelites were set free. That was like the worst, most succinct version of that story you've ever heard. So maybe just go read the Exodus. But anyways, uh, God saved them and set them free from Pharaoh. Set them free from Egypt. They were saved, but the thing wasn't done yet. They still had a destination to arrive at. God had for them what is called the promised land. And God saved them from Egypt so that he might bring them in to this place, this destination of salvation, the promised land. Well, when you were baptized, God promised you this destination of salvation as well. Only for you and I, it's not a strip of land out in Gaza somewhere, but the promised land is what we call the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That one day, Paul speaks of this day as the day of Christ, Jesus will return, and when he does, there will be a sound and a trumpet blast so loud that it will literally raise the dead, and we will enter into the presence of Jesus Christ forever, and we will finally be saved, ultimately, from death, from the temptations of the devil, from the sins that weigh us down and burden us constantly. Just as the Israelites entered the promised land, they had that land as their own. You and I will enter into Christ's presence where there will be no more crying or tears or pain or death or sin any longer. The old will finally be gone and the new will be new eternally. And so will you. This is what's promised to you in your baptism. You will be saved, as Luther says in the Catechism, from this veil of tears. So when were you saved? 2,000 years ago on the cross. And you will be saved from all of this when Christ comes again. We talk of salvation as an accomplished fact. It is, it is done, it is finished, it is completed. But also we talk about it as a sure and certain promise. And it is very clearly God who accomplishes all of this for us, and in us. None of this salvation depends upon us. But now today we come to one more area of our salvation journey that we need to focus on. And I think this is where Paul really deals with us today. He talks to us who have been saved and who will be saved about how we are presently being saved. We're in what we might call the time of the middle the time of the journey and the waiting. We have left the house and we are in the car on the way to Yosemite. See, that's where we are right now. And this car trip of salvation has us awaiting the final promised destination. And it's here where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but do not miss the next part because the next part is the key. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
This last line reminds us that Paul is in no way saying you save yourself in the past, even now, nor in the future. It's God who works that in you. It's God who works that for you. However, Paul is making us aware of a very important fact. You are being saved, but you're also on the car ride. But you know what happens on the car ride? The video games get taken away. And there's hunger. And there's temptation. And there's trial. I mean, just look at the Israelites. They were saved from Egypt. They were promised the promised land. And yet, when they were in the wilderness, they were tempted and tried at every, uh, from every way, from within and from without. They were saved. They were given salvation, they were looking forward to salvation, and they were being saved, and yet there was an attack on those who were saved. There was constant burdens and trials coming for them, trying to draw them away for them, for, uh, from their salvation. And Paul uses the Israelites today as a reminder for us who are on this journey. They were saved, but many of them on the journey rejected the salvation. They gave up on God, giving into the temptations that were around them. God had saved them so they might shine like stars in this crooked and twisted generation, as he says today. But instead, they decided to move back into the darkness. Because the journey to them seemed so long, they grew impatient with God, and they began to look to the gods of the world around them for immediate pleasure. They were tempted to think they knew better than God's word given to them by Moses, and they grumbled and complained against Moses. They listened to other voices and trusted other voices that were not the word of God. They feared, loved, and trusted things that were not their Savior. They grumbled, they rejected, they turned to idols, which resulted in a community that was marked by a lack of love and thrived on bitterness, and for many of them resulted in death. Paul's telling you and I today who are on this journey of salvation, who are saved and who will be saved, you will also face the same temptation. Because the same devil that hates them hates you. And he wants to draw you away from Christ. He wants to draw you off the road. And you will be tempted into the uh, ways of the world around you. I mean, to us it seems so often like God is taking his time, and I guess that's an appropriate way of speaking. God is taking his time before he returns on his terms. But to us, it seems like such a long time. And as we wait, like the Israelites, we grow impatient, waiting for him to come and make all things right. So we start to turn our faith towards others to try and get them to make all things right. For some reason, we continue to put our trust in politicians to fix our society. We'll put our trust in our finances to buy us happiness. We'll try and find meaning and purpose in, in, uh, in, in our relationships or in our jobs or, or in uh, uh, volunteering or something like this. We'll look to anything that is not Christ to give us meaning, to give us purpose, to give us hope. But ultimately, we become so uh, disenchanted with all of those things because they cannot bear the weight of God's responsibility. Soon what we find is that we will join this crooked and twisted generation taking God's good gifts and using them for our own sinful ends. We'll take a gift like authority and turn it into tyranny. 
We'll treat daily bread with greed instead of thanksgiving and praise. We'll twist the idea of love to be something that I deserve rather than something I'm called to give. And we grow bitter and faithless when things don't work out our way. And all of this results in grumbling and wandering from God. It is on this journey of salvation wrought by such temptations that Paul says you are now on this journey working out your salvation and God is at work in you to will and to work according to his purpose. He's calling us to fight and stand firm, to not be like the Israelites in the wilderness, but to cling to Christ Jesus. How does this work? Here's what he says. Don't be like the Israelites, is what this next part means. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. How can one persevere without giving into the grumbling? or succumbing to the twisting of the good gifts of God in this crooked generation? How do we as Christians reflect the light of Christ and so shine like stars in the darkness? Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. For it is God who is at work in that word to accomplish these things in you and through you. It is the word of God that sustains you now. It is the word that you hear and learn here in the church. It is the word that I am called by God now even today to proclaim to you in order to help sustain you on this journey. To announce to you again that though you give in to the ways of this crooked generation, you are yet forgiven. The blood was yet shed for you. You are still a beloved child of God. You are died for. You are loved. You are promised eternity. This promise that draws us to repent and turn from everything that would take this from us. Back towards the God who has turned towards you in grace and mercy. It is God who is at work in this word for you. And it is this word that comes to you through this preaching and through the sacrament today that will sustain you on this journey and carry you all the way to the promised life everlasting. That word which saved you at the beginning which will welcome you in the end, is the same word that is carrying you right now. What then begins to happen is we begin to reflect the light of this word in our lives. His forgiveness for you produces forgiving hearts. His love produces patience and kindness. His promises produce joy and hope in a world sent, uh, so bent on bitterness and division. And it is this word of life from the cross that is for you now, again, that will sustain you until you reach what we call the promised destination, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And in this way, you know the truth. You have been saved. You are being saved. And you will finally be saved from this world of temptation and woe into the complete joy his glorious life. Even so, we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty Father, we give you thanks that your salvation 
is for us at the beginning, the middle, and the end of our lives. That you sustain us through all things. Lord God, we pray that you would uh, give us your word in the midst of this world of sin. Help us to hold tightly to that word. And Lord, when we cannot hold tightly, when we lose our grip, we pray you of your mercy that your word would grip us and you would sustain us in the one true faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.